Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone I've always wanted to meet and have a conversation with from the band Heat Miser, Neil Gust is on the show today. And this is a, yeah, this is a, this is a really, uh, a conversation I'm really happy I got to have. More on that in one second, but First, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this show. He also, there's also a, uh, he, the, we, we, we also have a Instagram page, a TikTok page, a YouTube page, and a Facebook page for this podcast, all of which can be found at Turned Out a Punk on their respective platforms. If you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter or X at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, tell all your friends about it. Let everyone know that you know that we do this podcast here each and every week, twice a week now. I think we're going back to twice a week. And it's all over the map. We talk about punk from uh, all sorts of different vantage points and different definitions of it. And uh, we get we get into it. Speaking of getting into it, get into the band I play in. That's a very weird way of saying it, but we are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc. We are fresh off a tour with The Damned, going to Europe. We got records over there and, and more information, and you can find it all over there at fuckedup.cc. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top on the show today, from the band Heat Miser, the great Neil Gust is on the show. Now, Heat Miser is a band that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with because of the association with former member Elliot Smith. But don't discredit Heat Miser uh, and just, you know, look at it as being this band that Elliot Smith was in because Heat Miser is fucking incredible. This is a band that... I think it's overshadowed by, you know, everything that kind of came after it. These are, these are awesome songs. This band has been good the whole way through. Every record is worth diving into. Really, in researching this episode, I went back and I, I re- listened to a lot of stuff, some of the records I hadn't listened to in a long time, and I was like, oh my gosh, how is this band not talked about way more? Well, maybe that'll change now, because Third Man Records, our buddies over there at Third Man Records, have seen it fit to reissue kind of like a greatest hits compilation with some unreleased stuff. Um, it's called the music of heat miser. It is out now. You can pick it up anywhere and everywhere. And, uh, yes, yeah, so they're, they're a band that uh, outside of being a fan of, I didn't really know too much about the inner workings of, and Oh my gosh, are you in for a treat with this episode? We talk about a lot of stuff. This is a, a really great conversation with someone who, I've always wanted to have this kind of conversation with someone who I've always wanted to sit down and talk to about not just this band, but this band's place in punk history and just what it's like to have a friend, a, a creative partner that uh, kind of gets taken away, assumed into a, a larger world and becomes, um, I don't know, the property in a lot of ways of the world at large and you, you lose touch with who your friend was. We explain it and get into it a lot more, uh, deeply on the episode itself. I'm kind of searching for the words here to, to sum it all up. So you're gonna have to listen to the whole conversation. 
Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I'm going to tell you, check out the Music of Heat Miser compilation. Check out all the stuff. Check out number two, Neil's band afterwards, a band that links up all these disparate scenes. Once again, we talk about this in a second, so I'm not going to ramble on and force you to listen to it twice. But check out both those bands. They are fantastic. And that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Neil Gust on Turned Out a Punk. Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It has been an adventure and a half so far trying to get you on the air because of my Mac problems, but I appreciate your patience and I'm very excited to talk to you because there's like so much nerdy stuff for me to dig in with you. Awesome. I can't wait to talk about music with you too. Well, this is a a big thrill for me because I've been a fan of the band for a long time and I feel like it's kind of, it's a fascinating band because it links a lot of different worlds of kind of portland music and i think mm. portland is a very because of seattle i think it's a very underappreciated scene during that time period yeah it's really different it was different absolutely well we're gonna get into that but we gotta start it off the way they all start off which is neil how'd you get in a punk from the first time you ever came across it well i grew up in iowa city and um the first you know it was probably local band there was this like there was a big punk scene, but I wasn't really part of it. Like I, I was, I was super into REM and uh, I'd grown up listening to like Led Zeppelin. My, I have older brothers and cousins that lived in Chicago who like saw everybody. Um, They saw Ramones, The Clash, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, everything. But, uh, and I was much younger than them. So uh, the first punk band I probably saw was, probably a Iowa band called Iowa beef experience. Great band. Yeah. Um, and they were playing, uh, we were playing with them with my high school band and, uh, another band called stick dog was playing and they were really weird. They were like industrial and they had like big sheets of metal that they were like rattling and, um, and, and then there was another uh, Iowa City band called Red Throb that I remember being really good. It's it's interesting you brought up Iowa Beef Experience because like there's a uh, there's kind of this like noise rock thing and like you wind up doing records on Cavity Search Records which had um, Atomic sixty one on it too and yeah, I kind yeah. of that scene too where it's like this sort of like really cool Pan American like. Like noise rock scene, like AMREP records and art damaged punk scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was way before AMREP. That's, but it was like, I, you know, um, they all, like the guy in Iowa Beef Experience I went to high school with, and he, he was older than me and he worked at the school newspaper, which is where all the punk rockers worked. And our, you know, they took classes for the school newspaper and they would write about punk rock shows. Nobody in the school wanted to read about them except like four people. And I was one of them. And they like, they, I remember them writing about Husker Du. The, the, I found out about Husker Du from my school newspaper. Well, so, <laughs> so it was probably around like Metal Circus or something like that. So it, um, that uh, there was always this little corner of weirdos 
in Iowa City. Yeah, it feels like every school, unless it's like one of those weird schools that had a massive punk scene, right? Always had like right. a, a, a clique of of weird kids that would wind up not necessarily all into punk, but would all kind of have to group together because there's strength in numbers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What was your early high school band like? Like it was REM kind of vibe. Um. Well, it. So I was in a couple high school bands, and we only ever played like maybe two shows a year and and we would practice for months and months and months and months and then play the show and it was very like the first band i was in was mostly covers and we didn't even have a singer so it was <laughs> i i can't even remember what we played i remember one song was by rush and it took <laughs> me months to learn it um and then the second band i was in was more original and rem was i was in love with rem i couldn't get enough of them and it really was it wasn't so much the the like jangly music as it was i loved the the way that they conducted their band you know like they were they were all in it together and the stuff they put out looked so cool and mysterious and you couldn't tell what he was fucking singing. And it was just, there was so much to dig into and that's what I loved. Um, so I, I was trying to imitate that kind of thing. So I'd make these really weird homoerotic posters and put them up all over school. And I was totally in the closet. And I remember one of the guys in my band was like, dude, why are you putting all these suave looking guys on the poster? And his face turned completely red and I had to make up some excuse for it. It's interesting when you look at the effect REM had, and I think now it's being, uh, there's that captured tracks box set that came out a couple of years ago, like Jangle uh -huh. Pop, I forget what it's uh -huh. called. Um, but there, there is this sort of like, massive reverberation caused by that band. And I consider them a band that 100% comes out of punk. Yeah, totally. But they were also like a gateway, you know, they were total gateway drug band. And uh, eventually uh, I found, you know, a, a whole world of music that I didn't even know about. It's interesting who, too, when you look at like R.E.M. as being this sort of like one version of what a, uh, you know, like, an, I guess, quote unquote, independent band can kind of operate as or like, you know, obviously IRS, but like you know, like that kind of world of band. And then the other polarity happening at the same time, kind of diametrically opposed to it is butthole surfers. Right. The Iowa beef experience would be a band that's kind of gravitating to that whole world a little bit more. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but it does kind of come together in a weird way later on in Portland. Like you do see these kind of merging of these two kind of extremes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, what about uh, when you went to Boston? Like what was it for you leaving Iowa and heading out there? So I wasn't in Boston. I was in, I went to school at Hampshire, which was in Amherst, Massachusetts, but I had friends that lived in Boston and Boston was terrifying. I still like, I still find it to be one of the meanest places in the country. Um, people are mean there, <laughs> but um, it was it was fun to go to Boston. I think I saw, I think that's when I 
got to see the replacements and I don't remember if I ever did get to see any other bands there, but, um, at school, um, I, I, it's like we arrived at Hampshire right after all the great bands had just played there. So like bad brains had just played and Nirvana had just played and we missed it. I got to see Soundgarden there. I saw the flaming lips really early on. Um, but that's it. That's all I can think of. It's interesting too. Cause like Amherst does have a really distinct scene from Boston. I guess geographically, they're not that close. I just, in my Canadian geography of American geography sense, I'm like, Oh, they're like right on top of each other. Right. So the big scene in Amherst was dinosaur. It was mm-hmm. before they were dinosaur junior. And then, um, there was a great local band called Gobblehoof. And I think that's um that's where Elliot and I first like stood in a room with someone playing through a Marshall. And that had a big effect on both of us. Like it sounded so great and heavy and amazing. Yeah, the Gobblehoof put out any records? I'm trying to think if I've. I don't ever... know. I don't know if they did. Um, they, you know, like we, I just saw them on campus, but they weren't from Hampshire. So well, they just, I think. Yeah, they were really good. What about Bullet Let Travolta? Like, I guess they were kind I, of happy. Yeah, I never saw them. Um, uh, uh, but I had friends that went and saw them. Um, my buddy, uh, Mark Swanson, who worked in dance clubs in Boston, saw everybody. And so he would come back and tell me about all of this stuff. So Pixies were happening too. And that was a big deal. Um, yeah. Did they ever come up? Did they ever come up and play the Pixies? Um, they might've, I never saw them. It, it's interesting because then it's like almost like you guys are developing your own musical universe a little bit, like taking all this stuff in, uh, but not necessarily affected by by a scene at the same time. Because you're playing in bands in, in college, too, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, the the stuff that it was more just the stuff that came close by. So. Fugazi, we saw Fugazi and. Um, who else came? Jane's Addiction, um, a really terrible Jane's Addiction show, but Fugazi was mind blowing and life changing. You know, um, I can't remember anything else. I'm sorry, I've forgotten so much of this stuff. Oh, don't worry, this is <laughs> like a, a brain X lax. So, <laughs> uh, what was so terrible about the Jane's Addiction show? They they just it sounded bad. Like uh, I don't think they sound checked or anything, and I think they're I think they were high, and uh, or at least someone was high. I, I, the, it was just weird because we loved nothing shocking and listened to it constantly, and and then when we went to see it, it was so underwhelming. I'm sure other shows they played were incredible you know like i wish i got to see that but boy not this one we saw one of the bad ones it's weird how like i almost forget that 
Jane's Addiction and Fugazi existed in the same universe. Right? <laughs> weird. Yeah. I've never put them side by side till you just brought them up side by side like that, but they do have an interesting sonic similarity, like totally different approaches, but like the quest for rhythm within rock and roll. Yeah, they're experimental and inventive and um, weird and heavy and you know great bands but um fugazi we just definitely went towards uh found a much deeper emotional personal connection with fugazi well like not to jump ahead because this will probably get to eventually but like you know later on when the virgin deal comes up and it's time to like sign to a major label was that yeah. fugazi damage that so many of us have part of like that thought process for you guys like what does it mean to sign to a major label like what does it mean to to not be you know this kind of like perfect model of what a band should be that fugazi puts forth uh yeah there was definitely like concern about um what it meant to sign to a major label and um who these labels were and what it you know what tribe we were aligning with and all that stuff mattered a lot to us that what the way that it manifested for us was that we we didn't have a signed deal with frontier until we actually signed with virgin and so the day that we signed on virgin was the day we signed our frontier contract and both contracts were very bad for the band um but we you know, we were held together by momentum. And if we'd stopped to like fight about fairness in contracts, we would never have made more records together. I, I think it's interesting because not everyone in the band signs the contract with the major label even, right? Um, me and Elliot and Tony signed. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's all that the band was at the time. I, Sam Coombs, who plays bass, was he was like, I'm just the hired hand, even though he totally was the bass player. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's that was it that signed. I think I've even heard of an interview that he didn't want to sign to the contract, worrying that it was going to screw up with the other stuff he had. And it's sure it's funny. It's these contracts that bands were signing, especially in the wake of Nirvana, which is like sort of this massive rush on independent bands a lot of them were super predatory yeah yeah i mean knowing what i know now and having put out um you know three records in independent labels after that it's you know and and understanding like basic fairness about it um it's absurd the way those deals worked in the past but you know that's how it was it's also i found interesting that the vinyl comes out on cavity search records for the last lp and not on frontier like was that a conscious thing did you have to carve that out in the contract being like no our friends are yeah play. yeah i i don't remember like we've been putting out singles with with cavity search and we've made three they put out a single um right before mike city sons of two songs that aren't on that record um and then 
we just got them the vinyl rights. They, you know, it was really limited. They could only make a thousand of them. Um, so I don't, it, at the time, I, I mean, at the time, I think like a relation, our relationship with Frontier wasn't that great. And there wasn't a lot of trust and, um, I don't know why we didn't have them put out the vinyl. I have no idea. Like what? And also, like, why did they have to get signed? Like, this is just probably way in the weeds. But like, why would they have to get signed in on or a piece of you going forward on you know, Virgin Frontier? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> okay. I mean yeah. that that had really like serious repercussions for Elliot because like frontier ended up getting a piece of dreamworks deal with elliot and that that was wasn't fair but um you know did they get a piece of number two too no i i was like done like i got i sent um virgin a tape of new songs and they were like you know We've got the Spice Girls now, and this is really what we would like to concentrate on. It's like, okay. And so I was free. And once that deal ended, there was nothing tying me to anything else. So yeah, number two has always been, um, we've owned our master tapes and just find whatever label wants to work with us. It wasn't until much later that I really understood that Caroline was kind of like the uh the triple A team for Virgin. That yeah. it's like all those like smashing pumpkins, quote unquote independent records were actually like part of the deal, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 wasn't when we signed with Virgin, it wasn't like we knew our record was coming out on Caroline. Um it was more when we finally finished the record, there you know, we Heat Miser didn't have a booking agent and we we were going to tour, but there was no machinery in place to like promote the record. And they just kicked it down to Caroline as a way of like cutting their losses. But it's interesting because like I imagine around that time also Elliot is, you know, heating up like uh, either For sure. or, you know, and stuff. So. It's interesting that it wasn't more of a priority for them. Yeah, everyone just shifted their their before Heat Miser was even done making Mike City Suns. The 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 focus with you know with the business side of people, um, and and the audience was just to towards Elliot. So Heat Miser wasn't really a priority except for the people in the band we wanted to make a really good record and so it, it was a weird weird thing a weird experience and when it was done i was like man i i i gotta leave that behind it's because it, it's interesting because you must have been over it because by the time number two starts it's like a completely different vibe of a band and seems like it's operating almost in a different kind of world um it was certainly back to being totally independent and um and there 
uh, yeah, it was for me. Number two felt like freedom. You know, the the first the first number two record was a very freeing experience and um, great. Um, the second number two record was where I kind of confronted the fact that I I, I couldn't make a living doing it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so the if the, that was very different than heat miser which felt like maybe we are going to make a living doing this we've jumped way ahead and i yeah. <laughs> hopefully come back to this because i got to go back to when you get to portland uh, what was it that drew you to portland over any of the other kind of cities happening because like in a pre-nirvana world it's not like the northwest was the destination right so well elliot was from portland mm -hmm. and um he knew tony lash the drummer in heat miser He'd gone to school with Tony. They'd been playing, recording together um, during the summers while we were um, going to college. And when Elliot and I first um, decided that we were going to be in a band uh, after we graduated from school, our, the first thought was, let's move to Chicago. And it, it was sort of like what would be exciting? And then we thought maybe Chicago. So for a while we thought that's where we were going to go. And then, and then Elliot was like, what about playing with my friend, Tony? He, he sounds like the drummer in the Pixies. Like he's, he's that precise. And um, so it was like, okay, that <laughs> You know, we had no other plan other than to just try to be in a band, move to some place and do it. And, um, you know, we that was a fortunate choice. It's interesting now looking at Portland, uh, you know, in a post Portlandia world versus Portland back then, because it's kind of a harder city. Uh, back then or now? Back then. Well, yeah, it was it was is great. <laughs> You could be an artist there, you know, like it, it, it was cheap and there was a, uh, a lot of young people making stuff and it was competitive and, um, but it was, it was also stimulating, you know, there were writers and artists and tons of musicians making bands, doing all kinds of stuff like a, a vast spectrum of music that's not just like Pacific Northwest grunge rock. Um, and that was really thrilling. Well, yeah, I think that's spoken to by the fact that when you arrive, well, I guess not after when you arrive, but when you start doing the LPs, you end up working with the Slayer Hippie, which yeah. is so sick. Right. So Tony had, um, Tony was developing himself into a, a, a record producer and he had produced the poison idea record um i can't remember it's like feel the darkness i think it was um and that's how he knew slayer um steve hanford and when we uh when it came time to making a record properly he was like we should bring in steve he's a really good he's really good in the studio but i'm kind of nervous because you know you guys might not like him because he's 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 a handful 
And like the second we met him, everybody loved him because he was so funny. And he was just, he was so funny and really talented, but also a complete wild card. It's a band of wild cards. Yeah. Poison Ivy. Had you yeah. seen that? Had, had, I did. I saw them in it. Uh, like I didn't see them in their heyday when you know it. They must have been terrifying. I saw them towards the end. Um, well, that, oh, but, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, "Feel the Darkness" is one of my favorite records of all time. Like I think uh, that thing masterpiece. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you know, like the same time they're kind of winding down and you're there you, like you guys are playing. There's also like resist playing at the same time. And there's like uh quasi there's team dredge. There's like, are the, were the wipers still going? No. Um, they unfortunately were not, but um, so I never got to see the wipers. W was Greg Sage still playing around solo at that point? Cause that caught No, He like, I think he lived in Arizona or something. Oh. I don't know. I never, I, when I found out about the wipers, I was like, how have I gotten this far without knowing about the wipers? You know, like it, this, these are great. This is great. And he's gay. Like I, how did I not know? But you know, one of those things, I'm just glad that they, that those records had legs, you know, and that people still find out about them because they're amazing. Yeah. They're some of the greatest American rock records ever and then like yeah. you're saying like the fact that they're even still now this obscure like this band is up there with the replacements and and Husker do in yeah. terms of what it, it, like so you're you arrived like 1991 right or is it yeah. 1991 so had nirvana happened yet or it's just about to happen type thing yeah it had just come out so we arrived in the spring of 91 at like like may of 91 and I I got Nevermind in Portland. And it, at the same time, like Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had just come out and like Act Tongue Baby by U2 and um and uh the Metallica record with Enter Sandman. It all like all these records came out at the same summer. And uh when when Nirvana came out like we were meeting people who were just kind of like stunned. They were, they were because it, it hadn't fully blown, blown up yet, but you could tell like it was just about to. And, and so many people had lived with that band and knew them. And it was just part of like the, the local fiber, you know, and to have that suddenly become, the the dominant cultural force was disorienting yeah like you really get that sense when you talk to people from there like the relationship nirvana from people that were there at the time i find so fascinating from people yeah. that never got it to people that were like this is my favorite local band and felt like they had lost it or yeah you know, people friends with them you, you guys are kind of in the same circle that they're in uh i mean we weren't uh i eventually you know we became connected with people who knew them well, but it, uh, when we first arrived, it, we didn't really know anybody. Uh, the Elliot's friends 
were high school friends who um, I don't remember meeting any of his old friends from high school when we arrived in Portland. It really felt like we were starting over and had to meet all new friends. And, um, you know, besides Tony. Who were some of the local bands kind of happening around them that you fell in with? Cracker Bash um, was one of the more memorable ones. Um, and there's a band called Pond mm-hmm. that um, that they they just got inside the Sub Pop, I think. And there's a band called Sprinkler. And and then eventually there's a band called Hazel. Um, that were sort of the in the first year of Pete Miser actually playing. Those were they were all they all had much bigger audiences than we did, but we were trying to get shows with them, and so. But there's there's so many Portland bands. Oh my God, there. Um, those are the ones that I remember because I'm still friends with um, people in those bands. Um, but like the ones I didn't know as well, there was like Hitting Birth, which was this sort of tribal uh, experience. Um, and oh boy, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna remember all the Calamity Jane, um, mm-hmm. the there there's so many to remember and i'm drawing a blank well because you're right it is such a prolific well i guess it's scenes you know like the the fact that there's all these like different interpretations of what american underground music is yeah happening at the same time and a lot of it gets a lot of that nuance i think gets lost when people look back at that time because they kind of focus just on like as you brought up earlier the grunge thing that was kind of happening and it's it wasn't it certainly it maybe was the most dominant in the mainstream, but what wasn't the most dominant on the independent scene. For sure. For sure. Not. I mean, especially like in Portland, you, there would be bands that nobody had heard of outside of Portland, but in Portland, when they played, they'd sell out, you know, they're, um, they had huge followings. What made you, sorry, how long after you guys arrived, did you do that first demo tape? So the demo tape was recorded in 92 and over two, um, it was, it was like two months after we played our first show, um, when we recorded the demo. So it was, um, sometime in mid 92 I, I, you know, it's written down on the liner notes in the album. I don't have them in front of me. And then we went back into the studio um, a few months later and recorded some more stuff, just demoing because I think by then Frontier wanted to hear more. So we recorded a bunch of stuff. So were those songs that you had from college that you were kind of saving? So some of it had been developed in, in college, but um we wrote a lot really fast and um, uh, some of the stuff ended up being from there, but a lot of it um, really started to happen once we were playing with Tony 
and Brant because it it you know you could feel what it was going to be like. And what made you kind of approach Frontier? Was there like other labels you're looking at? Because it's no, like very story. We, we we would have taken anything, you know. Like it, we just they Frontier showed interest, so we were like, okay, you know, I, there there weren't um ever, all it, it was weird. Like there were um the labels that were around that time. So Sub Pop was at the very top. And then there was another Seattle label called CZ, I think. Absolutely. And yeah. there was um, Empty and um, Imp Records. There was, um, trying to think of other stuff. There was TK Records, which was in Portland. They were putting out Poison Idea. They put out Sprinkler. Um a sprinkler seven inch uh this but we couldn't get any they didn't give a shit you know like they they had there was so the pacific northwest was a wash in rock bands you know like it was so many bands that um to to stand out was difficult and frontier we hooked up with frontier through the dharma bums who had made like three records with the with Frontier, and uh, we got Lisa Fancher, who runs Frontier, the this cassette, and she had it for a while, and finally stuck it on in her car tape deck, and was like, "Yeah, okay." And as soon as somebody showed an interest, and we were like, "She put out the Circle Jerks, like, okay, we'll do that." Like that, suicidal tendencies, thin white rope. You know, like great. So we were off as soon as somebody showed an interest. We we weren't picky. Well, yeah, because like a shitty deal aside, it is a uh, it is one of those very storied American labels. Like yeah. yourself, like as you said, going back suicidal tendencies and circle jerks, and then you know they put out weird stuff all in between too. It's like. Lisa does have a really good ear for picking out these things that will resonate for a long time. Like a lot of these right. bands are right. She had flop from uh, Seattle and they were really awesome. And the nicest guys. Um, I remember loving that first record of theirs. Very poppy. Fantastic band. Um, so I guess, sorry, around that same time uh, when you arrived there, I guess there's also like fits of depression happening uh -huh. as were they a band that you played with at all or maybe I don't remember <laughs> played with a lot of bands. Um, I remember the name we didn't play. Were they on K? I think they might've been on K. Um, so we didn't play with a lot of K bands. Um, they didn't. They um, like the tribe was weird. Like it wasn't. um it it really wasn't until later um when Elliot was putting out records by himself and when number two was on Chainsaw that it felt like um you know K style bands would want to play with us. 
And also, is it the sound changing too? I guess with the band, like uh, you know, like at first you're like a heavier band, right? Yeah, I mean, at the time it was hard to distinguish us from other bands. Um, it's, I think, in retrospect, if you listen, it's the records sound great. You know, like it. Uh, if you if you're not awash in all of it um it it you can hear um what's good about it but at the time boy there was just so many guitar bands did you get much touring with on those early records i know you tour a national tour later on yeah um we did um i think three national tours and then several West coast tours never did anything in Europe. Um, but the first two heat miser tours were entirely put together, um, entirely booked by our manager who was JJ Gonson, who was also Elliot's girlfriend. She just sat at home and called places up cold called and put it together. And those tours were, um, they were hard, but they were pretty good. And then we finally got a booking agent and that tour fell apart really fast because just it was so badly organized and um, we'd show up and nobody would be there. And it was weird. Like, this is our third tour. We put out two records where how come nobody's here? I don't, it was weird. And then- Actually, then we did one more for Mike City Sons after that. But was she used? She's probably using "Book Your Own Fucking Life," right? That Max Rock and Roll probably. resource. Book it, yeah. Because it's interesting, like when you when you're relying on like a, a quote unquote punk kid to do your shows, you know they're going to bring their friends out. They're going to put like a little bit of effort into it, right? Because it's like you know, but also could be a complete disaster. It's either going to go one of two ways when it's a punk kid. Yeah, do. yeah, totally. Totally. And you would find and on those tours, they were amazing because like one night would be whoever happened to be in the bar. And then the next night, Kalamazoo, there's 120 people here and they all know the record. And it's like the greatest show you've played in months. And then the next night, it's like whoever is at the bar, you know, <laughs> I think it's changed now, but there's almost this thing that happens when you know, kind of like a beloved, you know, once again, to use punk as a shorthand band kind of tries to level up or naturally just winds up leveling up where there's like, uh, you know, like uh, there's, there's like a retraction in the audience because the people that kind of held you close as their band feel the, the, the they don't feel that same sort of ownership, it seems. And I see, you, I see personally who's been through it. Does, do you feel like that still happens? I think it's happening less, you yeah. know, like, it seems like the idea of, of selling out is, is very quaint now. Cause like we're all on Spotify. Like we're all, we're all playing the same game now. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was just talking to Sam Coombs. Um, the quasi was touring the East coast and um, we were talking about how uh Music fans are that you, you how how much of a 
you draw your community from what you listen to, you know, and it used to be much more um, tribal. And now because uh, maybe because of streaming and social media, it's, I mean, it must be because of that. Uh, there's, there's less of a, um, it's, 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 it's less grouped. So, um, the, the more, you know, I don't just belong to, you know, tribe Radiohead or whatever, you know, like I also listen to Afrobeat and I like Taylor Swift or whatever, you know, you can have uh, a much more uh, wide interest and still, and not be shut down by your friends, you know? <laughs> so it, it, maybe that's why if like a band um, tries to level up, it doesn't feel like a betrayal of that community of your little tiny community. Yeah, I think the, there was an economic component to it back then. Like you could only afford to buy so many records. You could only participate. Right. Totally. I mean, that I mean, the people that think that people complain about with vinyl that it's expensive and is uh, you know, it's a hassle that that's actually what makes it good because if it's expensive, you're investing in it. And if it's a hassle, you have to put time into it. And if you do those things, you end up getting more out of it rather than just having something that's like, um, you know, streaming in the background. Yeah, absolutely. There's almost like a religious adherence back then because there was a tithing that you had to do to, you know, you had to pay to the church of discord and me and Mackay yeah. records or going to the, going to the shows and like, yeah. That was your religion. So you were going to defend it against the church of bad religion or whatever. Other right. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess it speaks to what you were saying before about K records and, and that other kind of parallel scene that are like now in today's world, they're like on top of each other. But back then right. it's a golf. Oh, it was distinct from each other. Yes. It, it's interesting how it's changed. Like what's caused that change to happen? Like, as you're saying, it is this sort of like, exposure to all sorts of different sorts of music um you know but i think it's also like we've had this sort of shift where like the culture's gone from being like well it's just gone to mainstream culture like now there's almost like this sort of like religious devotion to the celebrities in the way that we kind of had in punk rock back then where you have you know like these these certain celebrities elevated to deities yeah yeah it's I've weird I walked through the mall yesterday or the other day and there was just like every single person in a Nirvana shirt, every single store. Had a Isn't Nirvana that shirt. the weirdest thing? I don't know what to make of it. I, I know, I know Kurt probably wouldn't be stoked. <laughs> For sure not. But I mean, I, I'm also happy those guys make money. Like if you can make money doing this, then more power to you. It's so hard. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there. I think there's like uh, stratospheres now of money too, because yeah. I think they're doing pretty good. Well, if they're getting a piece of every one of those shirts. They're definitely doing pretty good. Yeah. When it does come time to, to sign to Virgin and everything like that, was there resistance from people that you knew? Like, were there people telling you, kind of like, oh, "This this isn't something you'd want to do," or like, is there? Because there is still that major indie like 
religious adherence back then. No, there, I didn't feel that at all. Um, I think uh, most bands at the time were, everybody wanted to level up, you know, and get better or make cooler records. And we really wanted to like build our own studio and spend time recording and not be on the clock studio clock. And the only way to do that is to get someone to invest in us and so that we could buy all the gear, um, and which is what we did. Uh, so I didn't feel any of that resistance. There was resistance from like, from Elliot's solo uh, world where they, you know, it was taking energy away from that. And there, there was just this kind of weird unspoken, um, unclear vibe that, uh, you know, maybe this wasn't going to happen or it was going to happen, but how was it going to happen and what did it mean? And there were a lot of unanswered questions and mostly I, we just didn't talk about it because we were in our twenties and not very good at communication. <laughs> yeah. Cause I guess that kill rock stars, K records, it's, it's a lot closer to the Nirvana thing. And it's like a lot of yeah. these people were part of that circle. Yeah. So I imagine they would have had a lot more resistance to the idea of this thing happening. No, I don't think that's, I, I don't know. Cause I, I didn't know. I didn't know slim very well from slim moon from kill rock stars. And I stuff that Elliot was doing and going through, like it, it was separate from what heat miser was going through and we weren't living together at the time. So, uh, you know, I don't know what it was like for him to sign to a major label with his band. And if he took any flack for it, what I do know is that, uh, like his manager and publishing, they wanted to level Elliot up and they were definitely going to go to a major label. They just didn't know if they wanted it to be Virgin on his band. So I don't, I have no idea though. It's it, like I said, it was a feeling. I don't, it was so long ago that I don't remember the facts. I just remember the vibe and the, the, the feeling. And I, and I, I remember it feeling like there wasn't, stability and not really understanding why because elliot wasn't saying i don't want to do this he he was saying i want to make a great heat miser record so okay like let's do it and how we got there was you know just a matter of working it out but we didn't talk we didn't communicate very well I've heard you talk about almost a lack of confidence that you had by the end of recording versus the beginning of that recording session. For sure. I was really um, isolated. <laughs> uh, we, we built this recording studio in a house that was in walking distance from where I lived in Portland. It was so cool. Like we, we finally made the thing that we wanted to make, but um I was just going there by myself 
and Tony was off producing um, records and Elliot was touring by himself and Sam, uh, you know, he would come in and, and mess around with me when he could, but he had a job working at Kinko's and his focus was also to start quasi. So I would go in there by myself and just kind of not know what to do. I'd be reading manuals for how to work a compressor. Like it, I didn't know how to work a compressor. So <laughs> just would learn and then mess around and then kind of not have any feedback or the, you know, the bouncing off of my collaborators. It really wasn't until we started playing together that, um, and having the band respond to the work we were doing together that uh, I, f I started getting my confidence, but it, it was a hard thing to make, M mainly because the poor communication and the feeling of isolation. Well, yeah, it must have been so bizarre for you because like here you are at like the, the end game of a band or like the beginning of the career for the right. band. And like, this is all you'd work for. And then at the same time, it like, it's by yourself. Yeah. It didn't feel like it was the beginning. Like <laughs> it, it, that's, that's exactly it. You hit the nail on the head. It's a fantastic record though. Like I think, thank you. Yeah, it really does. I went back and re-listened to it today and I'm like, damn, this thing is fucking awesome. You're a sweetheart. Thank you very much. Uh, but I guess like, and also it's it's interesting because like you arrive in the Pacific Northwest and you're kind of like, as you say, you, you're in these circles a little bit more later on, but around these circles when everything's happening in Nirvana and then what happens with Elliot's kind of, it's different, but it's sort of the same sort of energy where what yeah. belongs to you very directly is being taken by other people. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. um, I can only imagine what that's like to deal with. Like, I, I, I can't imagine what it's like to deal with. Um, I, it was, a it was a weird emotional time. That's, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know what to, which part of it to delve into with you, but it's, um, it was, a it was strange to feel so isolated when it was, it shouldn't have been like that. Well, yeah, because it just seems like there's a simpatico between the two worlds. And I imagine like you could see that and it's just, but I guess there's other forces. Like you mentioned by this point, it's gone from being a band member and a friend to being a, uh, a resource for somebody or a, a commodity for someone. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure how to, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess moving on, like when number two started, as we talked about before, that's like a complete rejection of this feeling in this world. Like how how long did it take you from kind of the end of Heemizer before you were ready to kind of do this again? I was, well, I was ready to go. Like I, I had songs and, um, you know, ended up demoing using some of the so we he miser breaks up and um we start selling off 
all of the recording equipment that we'd bought. But we still had some, while we still had some of it, we had it in our apartment. And we, I lived in this house. Um, I lived in the top with a roommate and Elliot lived downstairs with a roommate. And we, we would demo using our gear. Um, and I demoed a bunch of stuff for number two with Elliot. Uh, this is before I even had a band. Um, and so Elliot would play um, drums and um, help, you know, run the the board and everything like that. And uh, it was really once I found Paul and Gilly and started going back and recording it, like piece by piece. Anytime we had enough money to record, we just kind of gathered up enough songs until we had a record. And then, so there was about three years, 90, well, 97 to 99, we put out the record in 99. So it took about two years to get that happening. I didn't realize that Gilly was also in Consolidated. Yeah. Yeah. She played, yeah. She's been in a lot of bands. It's fascinating with Consolidated because that band was so big and so important. And it feels like that's completely lost. Like it hasn't had that cultural reassessment yet. Yeah. Um, maybe it's maybe it's about time to go back. We're starting it today. Right? Yeah. Well, it's not like what they're saying isn't relevant today. Like it's maybe more sadly relevant and pressing that people say it now than even back then, it seems. Maybe. I'm I'm gonna have to listen after we hang up. And I haven't listened to Consolidated since since they were playing i'd be lying if i said i've been listening to a lot of consulting lately too but i think i'm gonna have to go back and listen to it as well it's it's interesting when you do something out of kind of like the rock milieu i guess like it it just ages differently and you know like there is a band that i wonder if it's going to have the same impact sonically that it would have at the time now do you do you ever have the urge to do that like musically me try and make yeah. stuff yeah I, I i recently have i did a record with some friends that's like a drum and bass record but my my vocal ability is very limited so what you see is what you get style wise with me so I can, it's awesome. more like they're they're choosing to put my very loud coat of paint into their painting and was it what it feel like what did you like it i loved it i loved it, it felt i feel as though you know, like very disarming because I think there's a safety in punk and hardcore, certainly with the style of music where like punk and hardcore is like the only thing where you don't need to worry about virtue being, being a lead singer in a punk hardcore band. This is the only thing you don't need to worry about virtuosity because it's all about just emotion. You don't have to worry about pitch, key, rhythm. <laughs> you just got to go out there and express yourself and then just fi finally have to start considering other factors in the music it's like oh wow i'm not as good at this as i thought it was yeah but punk punk can be anything it's just like that Absolutely. it's punk is a destructive force right like that's the thrill of the destructive force and you're just laying waste and that i mean at least that's what is thrilling about punk to me and taking that into any um any style of music is rad I, I definitely feel that too. I feel like 
And that's the thing that's amazing is because everyone's going to have a different interpretation of what that destructive force is. And it could be, you know, REM rejecting the toughness and the sort of like macho machismo in a lot right. of the rock, you know, or it could be consolidated or it could be what Psycom is the pre-Jane's addiction band. I think that was the punk band and, and uh, you know, Buttle Surfers or Fugazi. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. But like you do tend to get bogged down in your own interpretation of that. And then it tends to limit it. Like I find that with a lot of people that come on this show is that there's there the version that that was even not even chosen by them, sometimes imposed on them by the people around them. And that's the version you kind of take with you. Yeah, I can understand that, especially if music is your community, you know, like you don't being part of the community is what feels so good about it. And if you, if it, you know, you start breaking the rules of it and get rejected by your community, then it feels bad. Feels <laughs> but terrible. That's what punk is for, you know, like it's for blowing holes in things, you know, like it, it's an important force. Well, like you're saying, like, I think, you know, if, if we go with this maybe overblown metaphor of punk being a religion or, or the or culture being a religion, um, to get rejected by your church, to get cast out of your faith is, you know, it's, it's so destructive. Like, look at people that get cast out of their religion and it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Well, then they, that's when people start new religions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you have to be a certain strong enough type of personality type to be able to start your own religion. Like, yeah. I'll, times it's it's hard to kind of lick the wounds and, and kind of keep you know like like you lose your confidence and once you right. lose your confidence you can't fly anymore right yep that's what it all depends on right like believing in yourself and, and absolutely for me rock music is all about confidence and when you lose it it's like the you're what the fuck do you do? You know, but like interesting things can come of that because you like, you have to kind of wander around until you start, you can get airborne again, you know, like it, it, it leads to new things. So I don't know to all the punks out there, just keep doing, you know, don't lose hope. <laughs> keep the faith. Uh, speaking of community, you wind up on Chainsaw Records uh, mm -hmm. with number two. What a label! Amazing, incredible. The roster that was on there, and yeah, was that like kind of a scene? Like, were you playing with Sleater Kinney, and were you playing with some of the other bands on there? Or? No, uh, it was just Donna Donna Dresch, uh, who um, ran Chainsaw, um, just showed an interest in our band it's it's one of those things where like okay if someone shows an interest we'll do it um but it, it was also important to me that it was a queer label and um they're she put out great records you know like the the ones that i was really into were the need um and someone from the need is now in a band called nudity in in olympia and they're really awesome you should go check out nudity i have to i love i love that need for i love those need records yeah they're really good and um so it I, I loved being on her label and i was 
when it came time to doing our next record, she was like, you need something bigger than Chainsaw. I don't, I don't think you should put it out with us. And then, and then I couldn't find anyone to put it out until finally I did it. The second number two record took a long time to come out just because it, it was hard to find a home for it. I guess also as you get older too, you're not as involved in these new scenes, meeting the new kids that are starting the new labels or, or getting, you know, in with those people. It just becomes, it becomes harder to hold on to that culture. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such a social process and I, um, uh, like I'm not that social. And so it, it wasn't easy for me to just meet new people and, um, you know, find a, a new home for a new record. Like it, it, I, what I wanted to do was just focus on making the record and focus on the songs and focus on how we sounded and playing and all the other stuff I didn't want to do. But as soon as you stop doing all that other stuff, you're dead. Like you, you have to do all of it. You have to find the people who will be interested in you and make sure there's a connection and hang on to it and nurture it. And I, you know, by, by the time I realized that's what needed to be done, uh, I was, um, I, I just was exhausted. But <laughs> so much energy doing a band takes yeah. so much fucking work. Yeah, especially the starting of it. Like I think that's the most daunting part, and I think that's why people are afraid to leave their bands after a certain point because, like, you just think about, oh my gosh, the beginning is the the hardest part. Yeah, it's. I mean, all of it is hard. Keeping it going, you know, like you finish a record, you put it out. Now you got to do another one. You know, it's a but. The thing that I have to, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, I just have to try to remember that it's actually the process that I love and I'm happiest when I'm in it. And if I have to forget about whether it's successful or not, because the process is actually the the happiest part. Well, and that's the thing is like you lose that as soon as there's other people like labels or booking agents or managers like that's for the sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's yeah. Oh, sorry. No, please keep going. I, I feel like there's an alienation of process that happens with that when you surrender that stuff and like because that stuff's the most taxing. So, of course, you're happy to lose that. But at the same time, when you lose touch of that thing, it, it it's just going to. uh change your, your relationship to the, to the whole, the, you're only going to be concerned about the success and the metrics because that's the only thing you have to worry about. When you finish a record, like, do you, do you turn your back on it? Like, do you feel like, uh, what, what does it feel like to you when you finish your records? I kind of get excited at that point when I'm finished it, you know, there's obviously an immediate depression, but then there's yeah. like sort of, excitement of of uh, what are people going to like how are people going to respond to this are people going to hear what i heard writing it or <laughs> what i'm trying to get across uh which is i think that's the expectations that you start building up for yourself which of course can never be met 
and and sometimes in the right way too like sometimes if you're like oh no one's gonna like this and then people do respond to it you're like wow that's that's amazing but it's that you know that's the drug right i guess that's the the gamble yeah. every what are your relationships like back with you know heat miser like the last record or, or some of the records so can you go back and listen to that stuff not really um i i hadn't listened to heat miser in a you know, for decades, like I just really had to try to leave it behind in order to be able to do anything new and to get on with, you know, making something new. And it, it really wasn't until Tony started sending me mixes of these demos and stuff that he'd found. I didn't even remember that we'd done it. And um I, I was i i kind of couldn't believe it because it it sounded effortless you know like it, it was fun to just like these are kids in their 20s who have so much energy and they're fucking going for it and it sounds rad that was fun so doing putting out this record is really fun it's which is not how heat miser felt you know like especially towards the end it wasn't fun but this is it is so i like it so is it like do you think you can go back and listen to it now with a little bit less baggage on some of the stuff it's like do you have a different relationship to it having gone through this project and you know now especially like people will appreciate it in a different way like there's not the same sort of pressures on it that there were before i don't know i i don't have i i don't know i probably will at some point um but uh listening to old records that i've made tends to bring out uh, i get i start uh, deconstructing and wondering like why were those decisions made and um, when I hear this now with all this distance between us I can hear things that are good and but also things that are bad and I don't like I don't want to get um, paralyzed by uh, creatively by um, work I don't like that I did in the past and so I, I just try to avoid listening to stuff that I've made. When Toby was on the show, like Toby Vale from Bikini Kill, she talked about how, you know, after a certain point with Nirvana, she just, it just became a completely different world. She didn't really take in what was going on yeah. with it. Did you find that same thing with Elliot Smith's solo stuff after, you know, either or and everything? Like, did you, were you able to take it in and watch it as it unfolds? Or is it something that's just like completely you're, you're not paying attention to it. Um, I mean, I couldn't help but pay attention to it because it was right there. Um, and it it really changed some friendships that I had that in, in a way that was confusing and discouraging, you know, like um, Elliot blowing up had a weird effect on some friends. Um, and it, 
I don't know how to describe it, but you know, there is that, there's that Smith song. We hate it when our friends, what is it? We hate it when our friends become successful or become famous. It's, it's a weird thing because people could think about Elliot is it was really obvious how good it was when you're in the room listening to him it's like he's masterful and like uh, just uh, his technical ability was was exceptional um not to say uh, like his and then the abundance of talent so it was it was obvious that this is great but what was weird about it for me is that it um it had a direct impact on my life because it was it it had it was threatening my livelihood <laughs> and it was also he was my best friend you know and he he didn't want it to affect me in a negative way at all but he also needed to be the artist that he was born to be you know like he had to do his thing and and i understood that so it was um i i still struggle to really describe what it felt like because it it was so weird yeah I've, I've had a couple friends like no, obviously not to this sort of heights but i've had a couple friends that kind of take took off and, and actually a couple friends that subsequently passed away because of the stuff that was happening around them i think in a lot of ways and it's it's interesting how they're still your friend and still someone you love deeply but the thing that gets taken on by other people like you feel like not that they're being taken away from you but at the same time like there's a uh there's like a, a pulling on them in a, in a, in a way that um, I don't know, I'm, I'm failing to kind of put into words, but I, I, I like, I, I definitely relate on some level to this idea of like, you know, I'm on a bandman with these people either, but like losing this person to this thing that, you know, isn't going to be healthy for them because you know who they are as a person and you know yeah. that they're not going to be something that they take to. Yeah. Well, there's that too. <laughs> Yeah, man, it, um, yeah. Well, this has been an unbelievable conversation. And anytime you want to come on here, Neil, and talk about anything, you know, this door is always open to you. You're amazing. You're a really generous um, soul. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Neil, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Neil will be back for a part two at some point in the future. Sometimes you leave these conversations, or sometimes I leave these conversations with people and uh, they really sit with me. And this one with Neil was something that, that really sat with me for a very long time after having it. So, yeah, I'm grateful that I, I got a chance to have this conversation. I'm, I'm hopefully uh, you enjoyed it as well or got something out of it as well. Pick up that heat miser reissue on third man now. 
or like, I guess it's not really a reissue. It's kind of like a greatest hits compilation type thing, but it's well worth your time to kind of investigate this band further. All right. On to the next episode of this show coming up on the next episode. One of the wildest episodes of this podcast I've ever done. Uh, Toronto legend. Someone who's come up on this show many, many times. You can go back and listen to the uh, John Dwyer episode. I think we talk about the uh, Jay Riotard uh, riot that he started another time. Uh, a person who's died twice. I remind him of this on the show. Uh, so we, It goes wild. If you have not heard of this person, do not fear. Because uh, if you're not from Toronto, I don't know how far out this legend extends or how large this legend looms. Actually, what am I talking about? The Zoo Bombs have like a whole record named after this guy. Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk, Dan Burke will be on this show. And if you are from Toronto or surrounding areas or played in Toronto, you know this is going to be a wild episode. Wild, one of the wildest episodes of the show ever. And that is on the next one. All right. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues faced by Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hate and violence towards people of different sexualities, different um, religions, different ethnic backgrounds, because... No one has to, no one should have to live in fear of hate and violence because we're not talking about political issues. These are just basic human rights issues. People deserve to be able to live free and enjoy life. I would add to this, we got to make sure that people's rights to do what they want to do with their reproductive systems are also protected. So go out there and get involved and, and look at what's happening in this world. Look at organizations that could benefit from your help and your support. There's a lot of stuff in this world that is going to be very hard to change individually, but there's organizations, there's groups that are affecting positive change in this world. So get involved with your time, your money, your, your voice, whatever you can. And uh, speaking about getting involved, get involved with organ donating because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. And they do perform miracles. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. It is a truly amazing thing what can be done uh, with uh, those organs when you're dead. Well, you're, you're, anyway, we'll get into the details now, but sign those organ donor cards. Uh, get involved in punk, start a band, start a fanzine. A little bit different, but start a band, start a fanzine, do whatever you can, make flyers. Anyone can do this shit, and it gets better when you get involved, trust me. And try meditating. I didn't believe in it, and here I am you know, like a fool, a fool. Because I think about all the times I could have been meditating that could have been helping myself out with that kind of stuff. So try it. Stick with it. And eventually it will take. And that's it for me. Thank you everyone for listening. And I will see you on the next episode. Bye. American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20.